Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Today we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Philippians, and we'll be wrapping up our three-part series on Christian service exemplified. And our text over the last three weeks has lifted up three flesh-and-blood examples of what it is to follow after our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the third and final model that we see here in Philippians is a man named Epaphroditus, And this is a name that we only come across a few times in the pages of Scripture. But as is so often the case with historic men and women of their faith, their stories may be short, but their legacies are long-lasting. And already in this series, we've seen Paul presenting to us what it looks like to rejoice in and through sacrifice. Timothy has been teaching us what it means to seek after the interests of Christ rather than our own. And as we'll find out here shortly, Epaphroditus will be exhibiting what it takes to risk it all for the work of Christ. And this notion of risk is one that we're all very familiar with. So many decisions that we make are based on a risk versus reward analysis. We weigh the odds hoping that the risk will outweigh the rewards. And I'm sure many of us have heard the expression, no risk, no reward, which is very prevalent amongst business ventures. And this idea of risk is one we can understand no matter how old we are. The little kid looking to impress his friends by jumping off of the playground is worried that he might hurt himself when he hits the ground. The young man who's trying to work up his nerve to ask the pretty girl to the dance might be nervous that he's going to get rejected. And the young woman who's been married for a few years and considers whether it's whether or not she should give up the career she's always dreamed of to see to rather stay home and teach and educate her children weighs the risk and looks to the reward and no matter what walk of life we find ourselves in we measure the risk and we measure the reward in order to determine which path we will take but What would it take for someone to completely disregard the risk and move forward at full steam ahead towards the reward? And that's what we'll find out this morning as we look to the example of Epaphroditus. And if you aren't already there, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. Philippians 2, 25 through 30. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. 
Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So reads the words of the living God. And as we've already previously discussed and hopefully remember, Epaphroditus was the main messenger sent out by the Philippian church to deliver their gift to the Apostle Paul. And the biblical text only makes mention of him as the only messenger, but there's a good likelihood that others also traveled with him. For in the ancient world, it would have been very dangerous for one to travel alone, especially with such a sizable amount of money. And the presence of others along with Epaphroditus also helps to explain many of the critics' concerns over how the Philippian church came to find out that Epaphroditus had fallen ill. You see, the journey between Paul's most probable location of imprisonment, Rome, and Philippi, was between 700 to 1,200 miles, depending on the route that one would take. And it would take anywhere from six weeks to three months to make the journey. And critics argue that there wouldn't have been enough time for someone to travel back and forth delivering the news of Epaphroditus' illnesses and the congregation's concern. So, in attempts to rectify this, there have been multiple propositions made. Some jump to the conclusion that Paul must have been locked up somewhere closer to Philippi because that's the only way news could have traveled back and forth within the known time frame of Paul's imprisonment. And others have been even more bold, concluding that the epistle we know today as Philippians was originally two separate letters, one sent out by Paul with the emissary delivering the news to Philippi that their messenger, Epaphroditus, had fallen ill. And then the second letter was sent by Paul through the hands of Epaphroditus in response to the congregation's distress that they had heard that he was sick. And these are logical guesses as to what might have happened. And the end result is tragic. The critics are now left with what they say are two separate letters and two separate thoughts from the Apostle Paul. And their guessing ends up destroying the unity and cohesiveness of this letter. And such attempts have led many to jump to strange conclusions. A more probable solution was that Epaphroditus and others were sent out from Philippi, and then whenever Epaphroditus became sick, whether it was on the journey or once he arrived in Rome, that one of the other messengers returned to Philippi delivering the news. Epaphroditus knew that his church would have been concerned for him, so he was longing to return and ease their distress. And at the end of the day, these are but two of the many speculations of what took place behind the scenes. But either way, there's no sound evidence or indications within the text that the epistle to the Philippians was at one time two separate letters. Paul sent one planned and cohesive letter urging his recipients to rejoice and be unified together as a body of believers. And we know this, and we know that Epaphroditus was the main man in charge of delivering that gift to Paul. He would have been the first or most prominent figure in the Philippian congregation that volunteered himself to make the long, dangerous journey to Paul. He didn't unluckily draw the short straw and then unwillingly make the trip. No, he knew the journey would be long and difficult. He knew there would be risk involved, but still 
he went. So he packed some clothing in a carry-on bag and boarded the next flight to Rome. That'd be nice. Uh, Rather than arriving there overnight via air travel, he arrived there a few months later via foot travel. The majority of the trip was spent traveling west overland through Macedonia. A ship would have been boarded to cross either the Adriatic or the Ionian Sea, and then more travel on foot through Italy to Rome. And Epaphroditus's main purpose was to deliver the gift, which was principally a monetary one. But he, in a sense, was also part of the gift as well. And we see this in several places throughout our text. In verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as their messenger and his minister. And in verses 29 through 30, he commends that their church holds men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in their service to him. And what Paul means here is that the entire Philippian congregation was sadly unable to make the journey all the way to Rome to be there with Paul. And their service as a whole was lacking due to the fact that they couldn't all be there in person. But Epaphroditus' presence completes that deficiency. He had delivered the money, and now he was there to minister and serve. And it's unknown as to the exact period of time that Epaphroditus spent with Paul in Rome, anywhere from a few months to upward of a year. But in that relatively short span of time, it's amazing how dear this man was able to become to the Apostle Paul. We see from our text that he left Macedonia as a messenger and was prepared to minister to Paul's needs. But now, after having spent some time with Paul, he's become so much more. Take another look at verse 25. We know that Epaphroditus left as a messenger. He was prepared to minister. But now we can see from the text that Paul also says, You're my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And these titles bestowed upon Epaphroditus act as both a commendation and a confirmation of his salvation, as we've seen a few weeks ago in the previous text. A commendation that he is indeed working it out, and a confirmation that God has certainly worked it in. And Epaphroditus is accomplishing, fashioning, and finishing what God has already called and claimed him to be. He was adopted into God's family, and as such, he's a brother to all those who are of the faith. God has employed him to work, and he labors as a fellow worker. God has enlisted him to serve and he serves on the front lines as a fellow soldier. Paul sees that these things are true of this man, so he gives his words to Epaphroditus as an encouragement, and then he sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi as an example. And for all of us here today, his life is still an example to us. And it's great that other believers can look back and see these things that are true of Epaphroditus, But it would be greater if each of us could look into our own lives and claim these things to be true of ourselves with absolute certainty. And as to our new family, Jesus explains very clearly how this takes place. In John chapter 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus says to Jesus, 
Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And we also see in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, more about our adoption into God's family. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. And this was true and evident in the life of Epaphroditus. He was adopted into God's family just as Paul was, which made them brothers. And the wording used here for brothers, adelphos, has two basic functions within the New Testament. It's either describing a physical brother or a brother in a spiritual sense. And the same word is used synonymously in both cases. When Paul says to Epaphroditus, you are my brother, he's not merely describing two individuals that share a familiar cause. He's describing individuals that have a familial connection. So as I stand here in front of you all and look out into the congregation, I ask those of you who have been born again by the Spirit and adopted into God's family, brothers, sisters, are we acting as such? And what I mean by this is, do we all have, at minimum, the same type of relationship that we share with our own physical brother or sisters? It should be greater because the bond connecting us is greater, and the amount of time that we'll spend together is infinitely greater. But before we rise to a higher level, we need to ask, are we even on the same level? And as I was preparing for this and thinking of Epaphroditus' example, I asked myself the same question. And my honest answer is that with some of you, I share the same connection I do with my own family. With a few, it's risen to an even greater level. But with the mass majority, my answer is no. No, I don't. And I would venture that if each of us were honest with ourselves, the answer would look quite similar. And to this I say, no, scratch that, to this God says, it's high time that we do something about that. We call ourselves a faith family, and I think it's time that we all, myself included, start living up to that call. Epaphroditus departed from Philippi, determined to do two things, deliver a message and minister to Paul's needs. But after arriving in Rome, his role developed into something much more. 
As we've just seen, he was indeed Paul's he was indeed Paul's brother in the faith. And in addition to that, he was a fellow worker alongside the Apostle Paul. And there's no hidden meaning to unmine here. The term fellow worker means exactly that. It shares the same root word that is used by Jesus in several of his parables. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 is a good example. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. It's that cut and dry. Just as an employer employs laborers to work for a common cause, God has commissioned us as his laborers to go out into the world and work for his cause. Because as we know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And as we've looked at the examples of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus over the last couple weeks, we should once again be challenged by their lives. For this is the very reason that Paul lifted them up in this letter to the Philippians. And Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus have each illustrated what it means to work for the furtherance of the gospel. And hopefully taking a closer look at their lives has stirred up some of the same type of zeal in each one of us. And for some here looking to the example of these men, maybe their work has been an encouragement for you to keep on keeping on. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 reminds us, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And for others here this morning, maybe the labor of these men is compelling you to get back on the horse as the saying goes. Maybe you got bucked off or stepped out of the saddle for whatever reason, and you've become immersed in some other endeavor. Whatever the reason it may be, if this describes you, then Scripture would call you to get after it again. Paul advises us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-13, through 13, to make sure that we're building onto the foundation with materials that will last. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I, Paul, laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And what Paul is saying here is, don't be that guy whose only contribution to the foundation is wood, hay, or straw. For that won't add any gain to the kingdom, nor yourself. And verses 14 through 15 conclude by saying, If any man's work which he has built on it remains he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. And whether you're continuing on with fruitful labor or stepping back into it after a time of being distracted by lesser things, the call is the same. We are to labor and be fellow workers for Christ. And my assumption is that the majority of us here this morning would fall into one of these two categories. 
yet there's most likely some that would fall into a third. Maybe as you're sitting here, you've just realized or being convicted by God that you're not even in the game at all. You're just on the sidelines. And while the Bible doesn't spell it out in these exact words, nonetheless, it's still true that following after Jesus is not a spectator sport. We weren't, meant, we weren't meant to just sit on the bench and watch. If you remember back to Matt's study in the Gospel of Matthew, you should recall the parable of the talents. Jesus says this about the kingdom of heaven. It's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. And then, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who was given five talents returned those five talents and an additional five. The one who was given two talents returned those two talents and an additional two. Both slaves were told, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But the slave who had received just one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back. With interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if this last slave is a description of you, then I would sober up and start using what the Lord has given you while you still have the time. Because if not, as you've heard, the end result will be tragic. And wherever it is that we find ourselves this morning, the good news is that each of us still has time to continue, get back to, or even start working for the Lord. But the time isn't tomorrow or the day after that or the next year. The time to start is now. Beyond that, we don't know what our allotted portion of time will be. And let's not be found as a church who is wasting our precious time working for our own causes. Let's be found as a people who can be called the same as Epaphroditus, fellow workers for Christ. And as we've already seen this morning, Epaphroditus packed up his belongings and left Macedonia as a messenger and was prepared to minister. He did both of these things well, and on top of them, he was commended for being a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. I wouldn't presume that this concept, soldiers for Christ, is a new one for any of that have been in the church. It's definitely one we don't talk about a lot, and we certainly don't use it to identify ourselves call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes, 
fellow workers of Christ, rarely. Fellow soldiers of Christ, probably never. And to describe ourselves as soldiers almost seems too extreme. We say, I get the imagery of family and co-laborers, Paul, but you've gone too far on this last one. You say that I'm supposed to be a fellow soldier for Christ, but I don't see any war going on around me. Why does God need me as a soldier if there isn't a war? And so often, this is where we go wrong. We can't see the enemy knocking at our gate, so we forget that there's a war going on around us. We take off our armor, put down our swords, and act as if we're living in a time of peace. And nothing can be further from the truth. Ephesians six ten through 13 reminds us of this reality. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And just because we don't see the war going on around us, it does not negate the fact that there is one and that we have been called to engage in it as soldiers for Christ. And Martin Lord Jones, in his book entitled The Christian Warfare, says this, The Christian has put on the whole armor of God. He is filled with the strength and the power. He has fought the battle in the evil day. Then having done all, he's tempted to take off his armor. I have gained the victory, he says, all is well. Then taking off his armor, he lies down on his bed. No, says the apostle, having done all to stand, go on standing. You're always on duty in the Christian life. You can never relax. There's no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. And friends, we too have been enlisted to fight as fellow soldiers for the Lord. There is no question as to the battle. The only question that remains is, will you pick up arms and fight? And as we've seen this morning, even though the name Epaphroditus is only found a few times within the pages of Scripture, there is much that we can learn from his example. He was a messenger, a minister, a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier for the work of Christ. And one might assume that because Epaphroditus had to travel so far by foot to get to Rome that he might have left some of the many hats that he's been wearing at home and spared himself some extra weight in his baggage. But he didn't leave any of his hats behind because he didn't know which ones he would need to wear, so he packed them all. We see from him that he says, What's that? You need someone to walk a thousand miles to another country to hand deliver a gift? I'm your man. I have legs, so I'll go. You need someone to minister to Paul. I'm your guy. I have hands, so I'll minister. You need someone to work. I'm your guy. I have a strong back, so I will work. What's that, Lord? You need me to be a soldier. Well, okay then. I've been enlisted in the Lord's service, so I will serve. And he keeps on taking upon himself task after task in such a manner that it forces any onlooker to ask the question, Epaphroditus, when do you have time to do your own stuff? All you're doing is working for Christ. 
Don't you have any regard for yourself? And the answer to this question lies within our text. Take another look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 29 through 30. This is Paul's instruction to the church in Philippi. Receive him, Epaphroditus, then in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And we don't see Epaphroditus offering lip service as to whether or not he had any regard for his life. But we do see that the actions of his life cry out the answer with an emphatic no. No, I have no regard for my life because I have completely surrendered it over to Christ and his work. And the literal rendering of the word used here in the text means to expose oneself to danger, to have no concern for one's life, to disregard risk. And the King James Version captures the meaning behind this verb well. It reads, Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service to me. And as we read this, we may be compelled to ask, why would Epaphroditus take such risks? Was it because he was oblivious to the fact that he was taking part in dangerous things? No, he knew what he was doing, and he was willing to do so. So again, we ask, why? And he was willing to risk it all because when he weighed the cost of his own life against the reward of gaining Christ, the disparity was so large that he threw all caution to the wind. Epaphroditus was able to see that no risk was too big to take because he knew that everything he possessed still wouldn't be enough to earn him the reward that he was promised and had his hope set upon. So he cheerfully skips down the street, realizing that what he had possessed was not true riches, and now throws out his monopoly money by the handful because his eyes have seen true treasure, and he's willing to let go of everything else, even his own life, to lay a hold of it. And next week we'll see the same reaction from Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians as Paul looks back on all the advantages that his parents nationality, religious upbringing, and education brought him. He then stacks all of these things up in comparison to being found in Christ. And his conclusion is that all of these things are a loss and they're rubbish. And not because these things in and of themselves are trash, but because of the massive disproportion in their value. And we could spend the rest of our day going on and on with biblical example after example of men and women who saw the tremendous value of being brought back into relationship with the Lord and made the right judgment call in their own lives. We could trace this all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we see a list compiled of some of the great biblical names who showed their faith in action. And we see in verse 6 what it was that they believed about God. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And rather than continuing on with example after example of others who have made the right judgment call in their own lives, 
Let's get to the question that matters for each of us. What is Christ worth to me? His value was of infinite worth, but are you willing to let go of yourself and all of these lesser things in order to gain him the greatest thing? And maybe as you're sitting here this morning, you're saying to yourself, I know I have some faith, and I believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God, and those things are good, but you're still missing something. Do you believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him? Do you believe that what he has to offer you is worth more than all the riches, wealth, knowledge, and power anyone could amass while living here on this earth? Do you believe in your heart of hearts that even if you're to gain the whole world, that would be less than a drop in the bucket in comparison with knowing him and being known by him? Are you so convinced of this truth in your own life that you would throw away all that you have gained in order to gain Christ and be found in him? And not just because you're emotionally aroused on a Sunday morning. That's not what God wants from us. He's not after emotional arousal. What he wants is emphatic assurance. He wants us to be so assured and confident of his worth that there would be nothing left standing in our lives before him. If he showed up at your front door tomorrow with a dumpster and said, load it all up and you can have me, what would you do? Would we clean some of the stuff out of our junk drawer and say to God, you can have this. This is what I think you're worth. Or would you level everything you owned with a bulldozer and never look back? Would you surrender your life over to him and risk it all to work and serve him? And this was the conviction of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. But what of you? The value of Christ is fixed, and he is worth more than anything we can imagine. But what is he worth to you? What is Christ worth to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to you now and just, once again, thank you for your word, that we can open up and study it. We just see the richness of it, and hopefully gain a better appreciation of all that you've done to secure this thing called salvation, Lord, have a better understanding of our roles that you've called us to in it. And we'd also just have a, a deeper love and understanding of the infinite worth and value of your Son, Lord, that we would just put all of our, all of our efforts, all of our focus, uh, everything we have into serving you, Lord, and loving you, and we would just surrender our lives completely over to your Son, and that you'd help us to recognize uh, his infinite worth and value, and that from there, Lord, not because we're trying to earn what you've already given us, uh, but we love because you first loved us, Lord, that we would gain a better understanding of all it is that you've done, and then use that as our motivation to move forward and do what you've called us to do. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.